0: We are now today able to study galaxies that back when this telescope was around you just wouldn't have been able to to see or really known that they existed and certainly not what they were.
1: This is 100 Years 100 Objects stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts the collections registrar for Lancaster City Museums and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Today's object will take us far away from Lancaster and Morecambe, in fact it will take us far away from Earth. It's a postcard showing something that used to be a popular feature of Williamson Park, but very few people remember today. Today's object is an image of the Williamson Park Telescope. The postcard features a portrait black-and-white image of the inside of the observatory that used to sit in Williamson Park. There is a message on the back, which we will return to later in the episode, and we can see from the postmark that it was sent in 1928. It's a similar size to most of the others in our collection, about 14cm by 9cm, but shows a very large telescope, almost filling the room that it is in. The telescope points upwards towards a domed roof. It sits on a sturdy metal base, which includes large wheels which could be turned to change its position and angle. From the photograph, it's hard to get an idea of the scale of the instrument. However, to the right of the image is a door. The eyepiece is level with the top of the door frame, putting it at around 2 metres up. And if you compare the size of the door with the size of the telescope, you can see that it is almost twice the length of the door. We spoke to Dr Julie Wardlow a senior lecturer in the Department of Physics at Lancaster University about the telescope that used to connect Lancaster to the cosmos and about how astronomy has changed and what it has discovered since the end of the telescope's life. We began by discussing the rise and fall of the telescope at Williamson Park. The telescope in Williamson Park is now gone.
0: You just have the base of the observatory. It's very overgrown. There's trees in the way. You can't tell it would have once been an observatory apart from the signage there and the foundations that are still in in the park. But it was built there in about 1891. The telescope itself belonged to John Gregg who took over Cotton Mill and Caton in 1820. And when he died in 1882, the telescope was given to the Lancaster Corporation for public use, for a public observatory. In 1889, the site in Williamson Park was sought. On a little hill that's in Williamson Park, it's just down from the Ashton Memorial, and a plan was designed. And then in 1891, the Meridian Line was struck. So that's how you can tell exactly where north to south is in the observatory. So you can angle your telescopes perfectly and line it up with the stars. All the books and charts and things that were in that building were contributed by Reverend John who became the honorary director in that first summer visitors came they paid about a penny for entry and they could use the telescopes to view the sky both in daytime and at night so you could look at stars during the day through those telescopes and they would use terrestrial telescopes and binoculars to view the hills and the surrounding area so it was a really wonderful way of exposing people to the local area unfortunately things started to go downhill in 1939 when the curator james daubergin retired And then the weather station failed to meet the Met Office inspection. So it lost some of its people that were helping the observatory to keep going. And it lost part of its purpose as well, because the the weather station was no longer usable. At that point, there was an agreement put into place that the Lancaster Royal Grammar School would take over the day-to-day running. And they continued to use the observatory with still some public nights. But unfortunately, it gradually fell into disrepair and the weather readings declined as the instruments failed. Rotting woodwork due to damp started to cause lots of niggles in the observatory and gradually it just fell apart a little bit. There were some vandalism problems as well, which obviously didn't help. And so eventually, in about 1943 the telescope became seized up so you couldn't really change the direction that was pointing, which led to the problem that you have a telescope that you can only look at whatever happens to be overhead at the, at the moment. A repair bill came in for the main telescope in 1944 of over 200 pounds, which was far too much for them to pay. So it was decided that the observatory would be paused until the end of the war and unfortunately it never reopened and in 1960 it was demolished
1: Julie went on to tell us a bit more about the telescope itself and the other instruments that could be found in the observatory.
0: So this is a refracting telescope, which means that the light comes in much like eyeglasses. The light comes in one end and is bent by a single lens towards the other end. And it's the sort of thing you probably think of when you think of a telescope. The problem with these kind of telescopes is they tend to be extremely long. So this one was a seven and a half inch diameter, but they have to be long and skinny. So it was likely about three metres long. So obviously very hard to manoeuvre. There are other refracting telescopes up to about 20 metres in length, so they can be absolutely huge. Just because of the way the lenses work, in order to get the focus with such a big lens, you need a, a huge long tube. That's not the sort of telescopes we use today. We tend to use reflecting telescopes today which have a mirror in them rather than a lens. Well, we had some instruments on the telescope, so you could use it, as normal, with an eyepiece just staring through visually, you also had a spectroscope that you could put on the end and that would split the light into its constituent components. So you would basically get a rainbow within the telescope that you could look at, but it would be a much higher resolution than a normal rainbow. So you could see these little narrow lines in it, so dark patches or very, very bright patches, which are coming from the elements in the stars or in the uh, objects that you're looking at. So you could tell, for example, that the sun was made from hydrogen and helium by looking at those lines through the spectroscope with this telescope. In addition to that, there was a much smaller telescope, a two and a quarter inch diameter telescope that was a transit telescope that's used to measure the position of the stars really, really precisely, which is used to set clocks and used for navigators so that they know where they are. They also had a sidereal clock. So this is not a 24 hour clock that we're used to. This is a 23 hour and 56 minute clock. And the reason there's that four minute difference is because that's how long it takes the stars to go above the same point in the sky. So if you measure time with a sidereal clock, you can know exactly where a particular star is going to be at a particular time. So in an observatory, it's very useful to know the sidereal time as well as the Earth time. There was also the weather station that had a barometer, some thermometers, including wet and dry bulb thermometers. So you could tell the the humidity. There was a rain gauge. And this was really important because it was needed to know what the weather was doing day in, day out. And that was part of the war effort. The Met Office used to come and do regular inspections to check the quality of the instruments. And it was important to use the same instruments for the same measurements year on year on year. So you know the calibration of those particular instruments. And they managed to take daily readings of the weather at the same time every day from 1895 to 1939. It became a little bit of a challenge toward the end of that period due to some of the instruments getting lost or damaged, sometimes from vandalism. And there was some vegetation overgrowth as well that covered some of the instruments, which made it difficult to get the same measurements from the same instruments every time. There was also an eclipse of the sun that was visible from Lancaster in 1927. So obviously the observatory were very excited about that, as as any eclipse is, is absolutely fascinating. And they realised just a day or two before that this observatory site was actually going to be behind Ashton Memorial. So the sun was going to be blocked by Ashton Memorial. So they had to move one of the telescopes, take a portable telescope, put it elsewhere in the park to view that eclipse. In addition to all the scientific instruments, there was also a viewing room where visitors could use to look at the surrounding hills because you got the wonderful views from the top of that hill.
1: Very few professional astronomers today use the sort of telescope that was found at the observatory we wanted to know a bit more about how telescopes have changed since then. So this was a refracting telescope, which bends the light using a
0: lens. We now tend to use, for professional purposes, reflecting telescopes, which bend the light using a mirror. So it goes back on itself in the same direction. And the reason that we do that is because you can have a much bigger aperture, a much bigger lens, or in this case mirror, that gets you more light. You can collect more light in that bigger size, but it can be focused without having a massive long tube. So you can focus it in just a couple of metres instead of in tens of metres. So these days we have telescopes that are up to 10 metres in diameter. We are currently building some that are going to be much bigger than that. So there's a 39 meter telescope being built in Chile at the moment, for example. And there's absolutely no way you would be able to do that with a refracting telescope. We need the reflectors in order to get the size. And with having a reflecting telescope, you can also support the weight of that mirror from behind rather than just being able to support a lens on the sides of it which makes it much harder to take the weight. We tend to build the telescopes slightly differently as well in in terms of where we locate them so they'll be located in high sites where the air is dry and where the atmosphere is stable which really helps our observations as well. So we have different types of telescopes in different places. And we also now use different wavelengths as well. So we can look at light at all different wavelengths rather than just the ones that our eyes can detect. We can use cameras and things like that to measure the stars and measure what's going on in the universe rather than relying on sketching or even photographic plates.
1: Julie explained where this telescope sits in the history of astronomical equipment and told us what we can see and know now that they would not have been able to using a telescope like this. So when this telescope was being used,
0: particularly in the early days, we didn't even know that there were other galaxies in the universe. So what they were looking at were mostly stars and planets. But these days, of course, we know that there's a whole other set of galaxies, each have their own stars. And we we figured that out in the early 1920s thereabouts, when there was a big debate going on about whether what were called spiral nebulae, which were fuzzy patches in the sky that were spiral in shape, were part of our own Milky Way, or whether they were external galaxies. And it was only in about the 1920s that we could look at the distances and really get that narrowed down, that they were so far away that they couldn't possibly be in our Milky Way, and they had to be whole other galaxies. So we are now today able to study galaxies that back when this telescope was around, you just wouldn't have been able to, to see or really known that they existed and certainly not what they were. You can get telescopes for using the back garden and the things that are refracting telescopes like this one. They're generally be smaller and they might be made of different materials that allow them to be shorter. But you can also get up to very professional telescopes that are 8, 10 metres in diameter. And those could see things that are about 1800 times fainter than what this telescope could see. And that's just if you put your eye to them, which you never do these days. We use CCDs, so we use cameras in them which allows us to collect light over a long period of time. So we might expose that piece of sky for something like an hour or a couple of hours. Whereas with this telescope, you only have the eyepiece. You could only do it with the light that your eye could collect. The other thing that having much bigger telescopes helps is that we can have much higher resolution. So we can distinguish two parts of the sky much more clearly so we can see the detail in things like Jupiter's belts. So this telescope would have been about 0.6 arc second resolution. So that's a measurement of how close together things you can see. With the best telescopes today, you can do about 10 times better than that in resolution. But... We're also based in Lancaster, where the atmosphere is very turbulent and and moves a lot. So the atmosphere itself would have smeared out stuff. So you wouldn't see so much detail just because of the atmosphere. So for actually the site that they were at, that resolution is pretty good because the atmosphere would have blurred things even more than that. But today we put our telescopes on the top of high mountains. So we're above most of the atmosphere and we choose which mountains we use very, very carefully so that we know the atmosphere is is fairly smooth in that region. So it it doesn't add that turbulence to blur things out so much. The other thing we have today is adaptive optics, which is a technique where we measure how the atmosphere is moving, and we do that using lasers. So you will sometimes see pictures of observatories with lasers shooting into the sky, and they measure the reflection back from the the top edge of the atmosphere to see what the atmosphere is doing, and then several thousand times a second, they move the back of the mirror to correct for the atmosphere. So this allows us to see things that they wouldn't have been able to see. So galaxies, knowing that galaxies are separate structures from our Milky Way, we can detect things like exoplanets, so we can detect the fact that other stars have whole solar systems around them now. Some stars we can even see at the size of them, we can measure the size of them directly. We can look at X-ray of the universe, or we can look at infrared in the universe and go to radio wavelengths as well, whereas this telescope would have only worked in the optical regime, so it's only aiding our eyes, it's not adding additional information that we
1: couldn't see with our eyes. But there is still one thing that we haven't addressed, the not very astronomy-friendly weather that we often get in Lancaster. The writer of the postcard fell foul of this on their visit in 1928. The message reads, Just had the little outing to Lancaster Park and went to the observatory, but it was too cloudy to see anything. So is the weather still something that astronomers struggle with today? And does Lancaster have any other drawbacks as a site for a telescope?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So the weather can be a problem. We have to worry about several things with the weather. We have to worry, obviously, about the cloud and the rain, which is part of the reason for putting telescopes on big high sites because they tend to be drier. You're above most of the clouds most of the time. Not always. We still have problems with it. We need to worry about light pollution today, which I suspect they wouldn't have had to deal with so much. So we put our telescopes away from population hubs, although we still need to be close enough to make travel easy for the crews and things that need to go there. The thickness of the atmosphere makes a difference because the light has to travel through the atmosphere and it gets faded by that travel as well. When it's going through space, there's nothing to block it. The other thing about being in Lancaster is that you're limited to the northern sky. So if there's an effect that you want to see in the southern sky, you certainly can't do that from here. So we put our telescopes in places that you can kind of get a good view of of various parts of the sky. So we tend to have some northern telescopes and some southern telescopes, but they're very rarely very far north. They tend to be sort of part way up, so you get a little bit of overlap in the middle as well, depending on what we're trying to observe and
1: what things we're trying to measure. We can use different telescopes for different techniques. Before she left, Julie explained that there's one thing that modern astronomers can do to overcome all these issues that the builders of the Lancaster Observatory could only dream of, cut out all the issues of Earth-based telescopes By putting it in space.
0: So we also have telescopes in space as well as on Earth. And that's for two reasons. One is that we want to get above the atmosphere. So that gets us these really crisp quality, high resolution information. So something like the Hubble Space Telescope uses that to do optical wavelength observations without the atmosphere getting in the way. So the Hubble Space Telescope can be much, much smaller and still be just as sensitive as something on Earth. And it gets higher resolution as well because there's no atmosphere in the way. The other reason we go to space is to access wavelengths that we can't see from the ground because the atmosphere blocks certain wavelengths. So it would be very bad if the atmosphere didn't block ultraviolet or x-ray radiation because that would do us humans and all our families and pets an awful lot of damage. We wouldn't want that. So we put our X-ray telescopes in space because otherwise the X-rays wouldn't reach them. The atmosphere blocks those wavelengths. And similarly with ultraviolet light. And that's why something like the James Webb Space Telescope is in space because it is looking at wavelengths that the atmosphere blocks. So we have to put it above the atmosphere. And the reason we need all these different wavelengths telescopes is because they tell us about different types of physics that's happening in the universe. So the higher energy physics tends to emit at wavelengths that are very, very short. So X-ray and ultraviolet and the lower energy events are at longer wavelengths, far infrared and radio. So we need the full range of wavelengths in order to detect the full range of energies that's happening in the universe and see all the different things that are going on.
1: Thank you so much for exploring our collections and the universe with us today. Please do seek out some of our other episodes where we talk about everything from lighthouses to lithographs.